Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Here's a question I never thought I would ask. Can a future politician succeed where Donald Trump failed on January 6th and use the Electoral Count Act of 1887 to seize the presidency in 2024? We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. From the early 90s to the mid-aughts, J. Michael Ludig was an influential judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. I'm so much more interested in the law than, than, than the politics of it. He's a big deal. This is the law, and I write the law, period. When George W. Bush had two vacancies to fill on the Supreme Court back in 2005, Ludig was the runner-up, twice. Last year, Ludig provided the crucial legal arguments to then-Vice President Mike Pence when Pence was being pressured by President Trump to overturn the 2020 election. Nobody cares what Judge Ludig thinks about politics, nor should they. The only thing that matters to me in my, my life is the law. A few weeks later, Ludig was an influential advisor to Senate Republicans who were wrestling with whether or not you could impeach a former president. Ludig thought you couldn't. I analyzed uh, the uh, impeachment clauses of the Constitution and concluded and wrote that the impeachment clauses contemplate impeachment and removal from office of, of an incumbent president. And a lot of Republican senators took his advice. And now he has a new legal crusade, reforming the Electoral Count Act. He's been advising Republican senators on how to rewrite the 19th century law, making what he called in a recent op-ed in the New York Times, the conservative case for avoiding a repeat of January 6th. There is not one single person who can go to work in the Trump administration and come out with the reputation they went in with. Ludic has long been influential behind the scenes in conservative circles. And now, he's finally speaking out. We don't have much time. We're on your schedule, so... I talked to him for three hours, and afterward he told me it was the first interview he's ever done, and probably his last. Tell us about January 6th and, and Pence and um, your advice uh, to the vice president. I was first called uh, by uh, the vice president's counts, outside counsel, Richard Cullen, on the evening of January 4th. We now know that that was after the fateful Oval Office meeting that day between the president and vice president where John Eastman made the argument that the vice president could overturn the election, you know, unilaterally, let, let's say. 
as presiding officer. And you know John Eastman. John Eastman was, was one of my clerks over 25 years ago. And, and Richard Cullen uh, is, is one of my closest friends in all of life. And we had been at that point talking uh, seemingly every day, if not multiple times a day, throughout the entire Trump administration. So he called me and I was having dinner and, and says, uh, hey, Judge, uh, what do you know about John Eastman? And I said, well, he was a clerk of mine 30 years ago. And, you know, John's a, an academic. He's a professor and he's a brilliant constitutional scholar. I said, why, why are you asking? Wow. I think this is sort of shocking to hear you say this, considering what the way that most people have been introduced to John Eastman. Yeah. Well, I mean, read everything that was written about him before, you know, January 6th. So that, that's, that's interesting. The person who was the architect of the attempted coup, essentially, if I, I think uh, it's fair to use that language, was actually a well-respected legal mind um, with sound uh, views of the Constitution and uh, and, a, and and not like a the my pillow guy, not some legal quack, is, is, is what you're saying. No, that's correct. Not not at all. Farthest thing from it. So uh, Richard then said, "Well, you don't know, do you?" And I said, "Know what?" He said, "John's advising the president and the vice president that the vice president has this authority on January sixth, two days hence." And I said, "Wow, no, no I did not know that." I think I said that night, I said, well, look, you can tell the vice president that I said that, 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 that he has no such authority at all. And Richard said, he knows that. And I said, okay. And we hung up. So uh, I told my wife about the call. And I said, wow, this is, <laughs> this is big. I got up the next morning at, you know, I get up about 4.45 and, uh, I'm having my coffee and, and Richard calls, which is not unusual, uh, but the call was unusual. And he said, uh, hey, Judge, um, can you help the vice president? And I said, uh, sure. What what does he need? And, uh, you know, he said, well, we don't know <laughs> what he needs. And I said, well, what do you mean you don't know what he needs? Then why are you calling me, you know? And then he said, he said, look, this is serious. And I said, okay, I understand. What do you want? He said, I, we don't know. Somehow we, because he's talking with Mark Short and the vice president. And he says, so, you know, we, we need to do something publicly. Get your voice out to the country. And uh, he called back in 10 minutes and I said, uh, all right. I opened a Twitter account a couple of weeks ago, uh, but I, I don't know how to use it. And he said, perfect, figure it out and get this done. So I called my tech son who works for uh, Peter Thiel. And, and, and I said, how do I tweet something more than 180 <laughs> characters? Judge, wait a second. You're in the position here where the vice president is being pressured by the president of the United States to overturn the results of the election. And you're the sort of go-to legal mind who's respected among uh, Republicans. 
that the vice president is looking to to essentially stop a coup. Do, I mean, do I have that right? I understood the gravity of the moment and the momentous task that that I was being asked to help the vice president with. I had been following yeah. all of this, uh, you know, just very closely in the days leading up to it. It was then and may forever be one of the most significant moments in American history, right? And, you know, I've told you I'm a cut-up, but I'm deadly serious when the time comes. And and that day, I was as as serious as as I can possibly be. But first, you've got to learn how to tweet. But I've got to learn how to tweet. So my son sends me the Twitter instructions. Oh, well, first off, he says, Dad, I don't have time for this. To which I said, you just tell me right now how to get this done or I'll cut you out of the will, okay? (laughs) And then I set about to divide it up into 180 character tweets. Read it, reread it multiple times. And then, uh, you know, I take a deep breath and I hit tweet. And uh, almost immediately, uh, reporters started calling me. And and they all said, uh, Judge, what are you doing? And I said, I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, you didn't just tweet what you just tweeted for no reason. I said, if I tweeted this for a reason, I would not be at liberty to tell you. Minutes later, the New York Times ran ran the tweet. And more importantly the vice president cited your legal analysis on January 6th in his famous letter explaining what his responsibilities and authorities were that day. Yes, that that might be the the greatest honor of my life, but it came came to my attention, you know, in in the uh, least auspicious way. I got two back-to-back emails on the 6th from two of my clerks, both of them to the effect of, Judge, we know what you're doing. And I said, guys, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And they said, the vice president's on his way to the Capitol, and he cited you in his letter to the nation. And they sent me a copy of it. The reason I tell you that story, Ryan, is because that's the first time that I, I ever knew what was to happen with the tweet that, from the day before. No one had ever told me that. I had no idea and they obviously didn't didn't want and didn't intend to, to to tell me, and that's fine. That was a total surprise that that the the vice president, in at the most important moment, in my view, the most important moment of of Vice President Pence's life, that letter justifying that no, he cannot overturn the results. His his role is simply ministerial. Um, he, that was a total surprise to you that he cited your legal analysis as the justification for uh, his his view. Complete, utter surprise. And uh, the vice president called me the, the next morning to thank me. Can you tell us a little bit about that conversation? He was the most gracious person in the world, sincere, genuine, and... Uh, I was at the UPS store in Vail, Colorado, and a call came across as spam. (laughs) 
I never answered spam calls, but I had nothing else to do, so I answered it. So I said nothing. And then <laughs> a voice said, is this Judge Ludig? And I, 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 I startled me. And I said, yes, yes, it is. And the voice said, please hold for the vice president. I uh, scurried out to the car uh, so I'd have some privacy. Uh, and the vice president got on and, and said, uh, Judge, this is Mike Pence. I said to the vice president that it was the highest honor of my life that, uh, that he had, had asked me. And I will be grateful to him for the remainder of my life. So you were instrumental in advising Vice President Pence to reject the advice of the president and your former law clerk, uh, John Eastman. Um, you were, a few weeks later, instrumental in advising Republican senators that, no, President Trump can't be uh, convicted. There's a sound constitutional argument of uh, why a, a president who's now out of office can't be convicted. You're now uh, talking to Republican senators about this reform proposal of the Electoral Count Act. There are a lot of uh, Democrats who are wary of this effort and see that and think that it was just um, a, the reform of the ECA was something that was just thrown out there by Republicans when the Democrats were trying to do a much, much broader reform on uh, voting rights and uh, uh, political reform in general. Can you just tell us a little bit, based on your conversations with Republican senators about this issue, do you feel like you've broken through? Do you feel like Republican senators are taking your argument seriously and are committed to rewriting this law that is just obviously antiquated and uh, uh, poorly written? Nobody cares what Judge Ludig thinks about politics, nor should they. The only thing that matters to me in my, my life is the law. So, for instance, I also wrote a piece in the Washington Post saying that Trump could not uh, pardon himself. The point I want to make, and I know and you're not suggesting otherwise, is that I speak only on the law, okay? Period. Now, the fact is, is that that was what was necessary as an introduction to the problems and issues with, with the uh, Electoral Count Act. And incidentally, I didn't make this up. The former president has been telling this to the world for a year and a half. And most recently, the legislatures in the states, you know, that they're populating themselves with, with Trump supporters in order that they can exploit the Electoral Count Act, okay? I, I could have written that as a judicial opinion just as well as, a, as, as an op-ed. I was wary, to use your word, even about counseling anyone on Capitol Hill about this because I'm such a uh, cynic uh, about politics. So I had one conversation with a good friend of mine. And I said, they don't care what the law is, all right? Forget it. And that's, that's my view, and, and, and that's my view going into this. But what I was doing was not, in, in the Wall Street Journal op-ed, I wrote on the constitutionality of, of, of the Electoral Count Act, 
period. It was titled Congress Sowed the Seeds of January 6th in 1887. And it was a sort of history of the ECA. What I was doing here in this piece was not pronouncing the law, okay? Yeah. I was telling them what the problems in the law were and how they could fix them to uh, meet the exigency of Trump's threats to exploit the law in 2024. To me, that wrote itself also. The only effort required was to try to uh, work my way through the convoluted law. The, the two contributions that I have made to the discussion and hopefully to the resolution are that you take the disputes as to the electors completely out of the hands of the partisans, both in Congress and in the states, and you have those electoral disputes decided by the federal courts. Then the other real contribution that I've made is that to tell the Congress and and the country that Congress has the power to prevent the states from changing the method of appointing their electors after the election. Why? Because that's what Trump is, is threatening to do. And the legislatures. What is your message to the Eastmans of the world or other conservatives who think this threat is exaggerated or um, that it's silly to focus uh, on the ECA and, 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 and be as dramatic as you were in, in that New York Times op-ed. What's your message to your fellow conservatives about Trump? You know, I've always said going back 40 years that I, I was country before country was cool, right? <laughs> I'm a conservative and I've been a conservative my whole life. Now, I had the great privilege to to come under the tutelage of some of the truly great conservative legal and political minds of our generations, but especially people of the same political stripe can and often have different views on the law. But there's no one who can question me on the law. I mean, to my closest friends, I'd say, well, look... This is what he says he wants to do. Clearly says it. He says he wants to exploit the act in 2024 in exactly the way he attempted to exploit it in 2020. He's doing it in plain sight. So I don't really care. I don't know. Take Trump out of it. All right. He said these words and I just wrote them down on a piece of paper and then analyze the Electoral Count Act, which is exactly what he, the, the law that he was talking about exploiting. That's what I'd say to my best friends, and then to my totally best friends, I'd say, look, I don't really care what you think about my political views of Trump. And by the way, you shouldn't care either. Now, to the people who, you know, over the years, infrequently, but occasionally have said to me, I wish you had not done that. And I've said to those people, dear friends, I understand, but this is the law. And I write the law, period. But I also appreciate what you suggest that, you know, some number of them today are are, uh, mad at me, you know, for having done it. 
They are. You've gotten that feedback. Um, I, no, uh, <laughs> no, I don't. And there are not too many of my friends who would call and tell and tell me that because <laughs> they know what they would get, get from me in response. No, my friends and all these people that we're talking about, they understand, and they'll just go off and 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 do their own thing vis-a-vis Trump without regard to what I've said. They're not they're not going to change their view of Trump because of what I wrote, and I wouldn't expect them to. Once Donald Trump comes along, it's almost like he, he smashes the conservative movement and the Republican Party, especially the intellectual legal circles. People suddenly have to figure out what to make of, of him and his presidency. And there are those, um, I think of someone like George Conway, who pretty early on, after some sort of watching it up close because of his, his, his wife, Kellyanne Conway's relationship with the president and working at the White House, wonders if um, some of Trump's worst instincts can be um, guided and contained, um, but of course, eventually becomes one of his fiercest critics, but remains a, a conservative. And, and uh, most of his criticisms of Trump are from the, the right. Other people like your friend Bill Barr go to work for the president and makes a very, very controversial decisions. So I, I wonder, Juan, if you, you think I've sort of characterized that correctly, and maybe you can sort of help listeners understand what a lot of those um, people that we're talking about, how, how they started to, to see Trump. And just sort of from your own point of view in the private sector, but still a very well-known and very well-respected legal scholar and former judge, how you viewed the rise of Trump and his uh, his first couple of years in office, and especially the sort of legal issues that started swirling around around him. Yeah, George and I are not personal friends, you know. Although I respect him, uh, but but I did speak to George Conway's group. So the first question that they asked me was about Bill Barr, um, because they knew we were friends, and and many of them had been vociferously critical of, of Bill uh, throughout the entire time. And I answered it this way. I said, look, I, I understand and a- appreciate all the, the criticisms that came from members of, of this group. I said, to, as you know, Bill and I were both considered to, to be attorney general, and it was likely if, that if one got it, it didn't get it, the other one would. Because Bill and I talked about this Ryan, for the two months leading up to uh, his appointment. <laughs> if I could just interrupt you, that, I think that's a good place to start, right? This is the spring, summer of 2018. Just take us through that uh, relationship with Bill and the conversations you are having and the Trump administration's search for a replacement for um, Attorney General um, Jeff Sessions. Bill and I were both friends with Jeff Sessions. Bill closer than, than I. We talked often and increasingly uh, as the time came uh, for the appointment, which the whole world knew was coming because uh, it was so uh, agonizing. The way I've described it to friends is that for the, the first month, we decided we were trying to decide whether one of us should do this or not. And the second month, we were trying to decide which of us should do it. That's the conversation you and Barr are having. Yes, yes. 
is that conversation happening with Trump administration officials or just just with the with the two of you at that point? Bill was in in discussions with some of the president's advisors. Yeah. And and Bill has publicly said and and that's the only reason I would say it today is that you know he was ambivalent about it at it, 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 it first and for a considerable period of time and he and I were discussing all of that and then I, I think it was even reported in the Washington Post that he he had recommended me to the White House and one day Bill asked me you know you know he said look I'm I just don't know that I'm going to do this you know can you get your supporters on Capitol Hill and I said Yes, uh, I, sure, I can. Until the day came, you know, and Bill called and said, hey, the president called me and wants me to do this, and I guess I'm going to do it. So he did. Let me leave it this way. I wish for Bill's sake that he had not done it. Wow. But you would have done it if you if he had asked you to do it? You would have done it? Um, At the time? No. May, well, maybe, but probably no for the reason I was about to tell you. I was not exercising free choice, nor was I over the decision whether to be a director of the FBI. My wife was in complete charge of both decisions. We've been married 40 years. She's the sweetest, most adorable, wonderful woman in the world. But uh, she said in both instances, I will leave you if you go back to Washington and take either of these jobs. And I didn't ask her whether she really meant it because I was afraid of the answer I would get. She, she was, was vehemently, vehemently opposed, uh, Ryan, to my going back to Washington in, into the Trump administration. But it was about Trump. It wasn't about, you know, Washington's, you know, she doesn't like Washington. No, no, it was about Trump specifically. Yeah. What was holding her back? Well, there was she, nothing was holding her back. That was the problem. I'm sorry. What was, why was she holding you back? What, what was her case against uh, you going to work for, for Trump? You know, she said, you have a, a, a wonderful career and reputation. There is not one single person who can go to work in the Trump administration and come out with the reputation they went in with. And if you think that, that you can, you're kidding yourself. Do you think that that was true for Bill Barr? No, I think the, the the calculus was different for Bill. I know that the calculus was different for Bill. Bill was still in Washington, D.C. He would not have to relocate. He had been retired for a long time. And uh, you'll recall, he, he had a number of his family members in law enforcement, the Department of Justice and the White House. So, and then he was close friends with some of these uh, close advisors of, of the president. Actually, they were, I think that they were advisors of the president on the Mueller investigation. Well, right. I was going to ask, since you were in conversation with him, he famously sent Department of Justice and White House officials a 20-page memo criticizing the special counsel, which was, of course, music to Donald Trump's ears at the time. Um it's been characterized by a lot of critics as his audition letter for uh, attorney general. You guys are pretty close. You were talking uh, during this time. What was your visibility into into that? I'll take you back to, to DOJ in 1990. Bill and I were the closest of friends with Bob Mueller. Spent a lot of time socially and as, as well as 24-7 at work with, with Bob. We were friends. Hmm. So- I was actually advising, I'll just say, some media organizations uh, along the way on the Mueller investigation and on Bob Mueller himself. 
explaining to them all of the issues that, that were you know, presented to Bob Mueller as special counsel and explaining to them the exceeding difficulty that he would have charging and convicting the president. I was actually advising the, this unnamed entity the day uh, that Mueller was forced to return to Capitol Hill when he didn't want to. I, I will. I would tell you, Ryan, that I I was advising them before he appeared that I did not believe that he could testify that day in Congress. Something was going on with with, with Bob physically slash mentally. I I don't know to this day, and I think we never will. Just to remind listeners, this was a famous um, his famous testimony. After the Mueller report uh, is released, to present it uh, to Congress in person, uh, they asked him, they asked him to do that, and he seemed a little um, shaky, a little uh, off his game. I guess is what what you're you're referring to here. It, it was wor- much worse than that, but yes, that's what I'm referring to. I think what I texted to my friends was, "Bob's in trouble." You think it was a health issue? I do. Something that cognitively impaired him? I do, Ryan, but that's just my observation. I do not know. Both Bob and, and Ann, his wife, are good friends with Elizabeth and, and I, and and I, I, I knew it instantly. So a couple of questions about being a well-known judge, someone you know with, with all of these connections in the conservative uh, legal world. And obviously someone who, like all federal judges, wants to be a Supreme Court justice. How do the political considerations of the process by which a judge rises to the Supreme Court, how did that affect you um, all those years on uh, the bench? Yeah, I've never, I've never discussed this with anyone, um, Ryan, uh, much less publicly. But, but of course, I've thought about it for many, many years. During the time that I was on the bench, I regarded myself as as being there because of people like uh, Warren Berger, Nino Scalia, Ed Meese, and Ronald Reagan and, and George Bush. Those people, they were looking over my shoulder for the entire time I was a judge, not to reach any kind of result any particular result ever, just the opposite. But to say what I believe the law was without regard to politics or policy uh, or or any other uh, factor uh, external to the law, And that's our show. Our producers are Cara Tabor and Carlos Prieto. Jenny Ament is our senior producer. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Special thanks to Bruce Roberts, who recorded Judge Ludig down in South Carolina. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thank you for listening.